Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. Father, do shape our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, our actions, our dreams uh, in line with your word, your thoughts, your actions, your dreams for your world. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are some things in the life of the church that don't stand the test of time. Uh, One thing that comes to mind that hasn't stood the test of time in the life of the church is international roast coffee. Thankfully, we've now replaced what I'm not even sure is coffee, international roast, with, at the bare minimum, plunger coffee. That has not stood the test of time, international roast. There also was a habit just a few years ago that saw church musos across the world insist on repeating the last verse of every song despite the fact that the songwriter intended that to be the last verse. They would go on to repeat the second half of the last verse, then the last line, then the last half of the line, then the last syllable, and then ad-lib for a little bit as if the worst thing we could ever do was end the worship set. Now, I'm not too sad that that is in the past, and I'm holding out that it won't be too long before playing when someone is praying goes the same way. There are some things in the life of the church, good, bad or indifferent, which come and go. It's just the nature of life on earth. Often what seems fresh and edgy and helpful today starts to look daggy and old by the next. But when it becomes obvious that we've sidelined or lost sight of things that have been part of the life of the church from the very beginning, when we've ditched or lost emphases that have shaped the life of church for the past 2,000 years since Jesus and the Apostles then we should start to get a little nervous. Like the whole idea of worldliness, for example. I mean, even to say the word out loud sounds a bit strange, a bit quaint. Worldliness. Conjures up pictures in your mind, surely, of disapproving Christians of a previous generation dealing heavy-handedly with the important theological issues like wearing makeup or dancing or just generally having fun. See, getting worked up today about worldliness sounds vaguely Amish. It smacks of being anti-technology, anti-entertainment or anti-fashion or just generally weird. So what have we done? We've just stopped talking about it. We don't talk or think or worry about the dangers of the world anymore. At least you've never told me that you do. Instead, we talk about cultural engagement and redeeming culture and delighting in all the details of life, which are all good and important, but so is the whole idea of the danger of worldliness. You see, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle John writes, Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, But he's from the world, and the world is passing away, along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. According to John, getting too caught up in the world, with the world, is a real and present danger. Now, worldliness is starting to think like, and talk like, and act like, and dream like everyone else. It's getting sucked into the anti-God patterns and rhythms of life on earth. It's a dreadful mistake, and it really matters. For John, that is a real issue. And it's not just John. In Romans 12, Paul expresses the same concern. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. If we belong to Christ, 
We need to think and live differently. Worldliness is starting to think like, talk like, act like, and dream like everyone else. And it's a real issue. And for most of the history of the church, Christians have recognized this. To be a Christian is to take up the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's been on the agenda of almost all of our forebears to make sure that our dreams and passions and convictions aren't captured or shaped by anyone other than God. But I'm not even sure it's on our radar. We've become more comfortable, more friendly, more at ease, more engaged with the world than the church has been for a very long time. Whilst there are some very good things about that, there are also some great dangers. Spurgeon once said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over it. Put your finger, he writes, on any prosperous page in the pages of the church's history and you'll find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times where the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. Worldliness is growing over the church. She is mossed with it. Now, I suspect if we don't take the warnings of the Bible seriously about the dangers of worldliness, that is where we will end up. So the challenge we face now is this. We need to think how we can live radically and differently in a world of the iPhone 6, Spotify, same-sex marriage and children who are constantly told they can be whatever they want to be and in a world that worships the gods of fitness, food, fermented beverages and free time. How do we live? How do we reach out to this world without saying to think, talk, act, dream like everyone else? This is really urgent. It really matters, and that's why 2 Kings 16 to 17 could not be more relevant. After racing through a pile of nondescript kings of Judah and Israel in 2 Kings 15, our writer slows down again to focus on one man, on one king in Judah in 2 Kings 16, Ahaz. And his verdict of this king? Not good. Have a look at verse 1, chapter 16. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, became king of Judah. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like his ancestor David, but walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even made his son pass through the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. In fact, not good is a little bit of an understatement. Ahaz has been particularly bad. He's right up there with Manasseh, the worst king of Judah. What did he do that was so bad? Well, firstly, he failed to consistently follow in the footsteps of his forefather, David, his godly lead. He enthusiastically, on the other part, copied the kings of Israel, which is never smart. He practiced child sacrifice for goodness on his own children. He was a passionate, committed idolater, verse 4. Lots of his predecessors had been inconsistent, hadn't gone after idolatry, perhaps with sufficient seriousness. They had failed, yep, to wipe out the high places, but Ahaz, oh, he was different. 
He visited the high places. He took his idolatry very seriously. He wholeheartedly let his people down this hellish track. So what's the problem? How did Ahaz become such a terrible king? Well, you may have guessed it. The answer to Ahaz's problem was he was worldly. What happens next in our passage explains that Ahaz trusted the world, not God. He loved the world, not Yahweh. You see, when things get complicated for Ahaz, what does he do? He runs to the Assyrians. He makes a covenant with a guy named Tiglath-Pileser. Verses 5, 6 and 7 make clear that the Assyrians were beginning to gang up on God's people. They were putting the economic and military squeeze and heat on Judah. In verse 6, they tell us that, it tells us that Elath, an important trade city that belonged to Israel, to God's people, had been taken back. What does Ahaz do under the pressure? It's worth mentioning just really briefly here at this point that right in verses 6 and 7 of 2 Kings 16, Isaiah chapters 7 through to 12 kind of squeeze into the story of Judah. Much of Isaiah's, the great prophet Isaiah's early preaching was personally directed to King Ahaz at this moment, in this time. It's Ahaz who gets the Christmas news that Yahweh will cause a virgin to conceive and give birth to a son whose name will be Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. Yahweh tells Ahaz in no uncertain terms not to trust Assyria, but to cling to God, his word, his promises, and all will be well for God's people. Ahaz got specific, concrete promises from God to hold on to. So what does Ahaz do? He trusts Assyria. Listen to the repetition in verses 7 to 9. It makes it very clear who Ahaz is counting on. So verse 7, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. March up and save me from the power of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries, from the, of the king's palace and sent them to the king of Assyria as a gift, I think more as a bribe. So verse 9, the king of Assyria listened to him and marched up to Damascus and captured it. He deported its people to Kerr, but put resin to death. Bottom line, Ahaz trusts the king of Assyria. Ahaz licks Tiglath-Pileser's boots and he does so. He totally ignores the Davidic covenant. The covenant made to Jacob to Isaac, back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and everything else. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator on this passage, suggests that as he did so, he might have sung slightly altered version of the old great hymn we sing at 8am, My Jesus, I love thee. Ahaz would have sung, My Tiglath, I bribe thee. You know I'm your man. For thee, Yahweh's promises, I view as mere sand. You mighty oppressor, my saviour art thou. If ever I needed you, dear Tiglath, it's now. And it worked. It bought him short-term gain. Going with the flow often does that, but it leads rapidly to disaster. As John says, there's no long-term future in worldliness. That's Ahaz's basic problem. He thinks he can solve his political, military and economic issues without any reference to God. If it's a choice between King Yahweh or King of Assyria, he chooses the King of Assyria every day of the week and twice on Sundays. That's where his trust is. 
It shouldn't really surprise us that the chapter goes on to actually show that's where his heart is as well. Verses 10 to 20 tells us what I think is the most bizarre story of religious reform in all of the Old Testament. The Jerusalem temple, which we looked at weeks ago, as that got erected in chapters 5 to 6 and 7 of 1 Kings, gets completely rearranged. The whole liturgy, temple worship, gets reformed. Why? All on the basis of what Ahaz sees when he's on holidays. Verse 10, King Ahaz went on holidays to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. When he saw the altar that was in Damascus, King Ahaz sent a model of the altar, complete with plans for its construction to Uriah the priest. Uriah built the altar according to all the instructions King Ahaz sent to Damascus. Therefore, by the time King Ahaz came back from Damascus, Uriah the priest had completed it. It was built before Ahaz got home, before Jetstar Flight 333 landed. You see, there's no pressure here from a foreign wife or a foreign king. There's no power struggle going on in Judah. It doesn't seem that Tiglath-Pileser cared much about what went on in Jerusalem. The Assyrians weren't into blood sacrifice. They couldn't care what the Jews were doing down in the temple. It's all down to what's going on in Ahaz's head and his heart. What's going on in there? Oh, well, that's nice. We could have one of those funky Damascus altars back in Jerusalem. Uriah, knock me up, knock, knock me up one of those Damascus-style altars. And that's that. Uriah receives the postcard from Damascus, from Ahaz, follows the instructions on the back, and look what happens next. Verse 12. When the king came back from Damascus, he saw the altar. He approached the altar and ascended it. He offered his burnt offerings, his grain offering, poured out his drink offering, and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar. He took the bronze altar that was before the Lord in front of the temple, before his altar in the Lord's temple, and put it on the north side of the altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah, the priest, offer on the great altar the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering, and the grain offering. Also offer the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood sacrifice. The bronze altar will be for me to seek guidance. Uriah, the priest, did everything King Ahaz commanded. Almost 1,000 years of godly tradition is turned on its head as Ahaz says, you know what, this altar will be better over here and this one over there. What do you think? With about as much gravity and theological thought as an episode of The Block on Channel 9, everything in the temple is reconfigured. Ahaz does a Jeroboam, rewrites the temple liturgy because it just sounds better. Presumably, that's why he makes the cosmetic changes in verse 17 and 18. The commentators go to town on this. Verse 17. Then Ahaz cut off the frames of the water carts and removed the bronze basin from each of them. He took the reservoir, the sea, from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pavement. Just Apparently, that was what you did. To satisfy the king of Assyria, he removed from the Lord's temple the Sabbath canopy, that they had built in the palace. And he closed the outer entrance for the king. Why? Why did he do all this? All because of the king of Assyria. 
The king of Assyria was running Assyria, a massive kingdom. He couldn't care less about a canopy-covered walkway thing in the temple in Jerusalem. This is all a perfect, ultimate triumph of style over substance. Ahaz just loved how things looked, so he thinks, oh, the king of Assyria will like it much better if we get rid of that awful awning out the front. It doesn't even seem to enter his head to ask, what would Yahweh want from us? doesn't even occur to him. He loves the world. He trusts the world. You see, if worldliness is starting to think like, talk like, act like, and dream like everyone else, it's getting sucked into the anti-God patterns and rhythms of life on earth, then Ahaz has nailed it. He's worldly. It's helpful to notice at this point that the default setting of all of Ahaz's life is basically worldliness. And it comes both when he's under real pressure and when the pressure is off, when he's on holidays. And in that, I think it provides us with a helpful diagnostic of our own growth or deterioration in our trust in and love for God over and against the world. Where do we run when we're under pressure? One thing I've noticed over many years is that pressure is pretty normal. In the course of any year, I reckon that I feel like I'm under pressure about 70% of the time. Looming deadlines, tricky pastoral issues, strategic meetings, things to do with family, pressure from seller to get a trampoline, moving, you know, the things, extra stuff that comes up at church. I don't think it's unreasonable that for anyone who's half serious about living for Jesus, that that's the way it's going to be. I don't know why we have this idea that 50 weeks out of 52 should be really relaxed and cruisy, but just we can handle two weeks of pressure. My experience is that life is the reverse. The result is that we spend far more time thinking about how to ease the pressure and far too little working out how to live under the pressure which is what we have to do. So the way in which we react when we are under pressure is actually how we live a lot of the time. So what does it naturally say about us? What's our instinct? What's our natural reaction when someone puts us under pressure? Is it to panic? To go into denial? To switch on the TV? To crack open a beer? To play sport? to watch sport, to eat too much, to call someone smarter, more organised, to help us out of the pressure, to work harder, to get on top of it, to please whoever's putting us under the pressure. See, the problem with all of those options is they're exactly the same options as all of my non-Christian friends. The kind of thing Ahaz did. What are we to do as Christians? We should run to God. Stop. Pray. Read God's word. Get perspective on what's really going on in the world. Meet with each other. Because it's through prayer and the reading of God's word and the gathering together as God's people that we get the strength and the wisdom that we need to live under the pressure. That's the difference between worldliness and godliness. Run to God or do it ourselves. 
So is worldliness creeping in under the pressure? What about when you're not under pressure? When you're on holiday? You know, in your tiredness, in your relaxing, where does your heart run to? What do you long for? Apart from sleep, what shapes your time off? What do you crave? A really good glass of red? Me time? A good surf? More TV? A good bike ride? Or just to kind of switch off, check out? It's kind of normal, those things, aren't they? It's what everyone does. But you see, knowing that we belong to the living God should infuse our holidays with greater delight because we should be reminded that we're in him and that all we do, even our holidays, ought to be shaped by him. Don't work, rest and play like godless Australia. That was Ahaz's problem. That's the warning, I think, from Ahaz. That's rammed home by the gut-wrenching words of 2 Kings 17. In six short verses at the start of chapter 17, the story of the northern kingdom of God's people, Israel, comes to an end. Even though this has been brewing and, and on the horizon, it's still staggeringly stupid. This piece of horrible history is the ultimate in stupid deaths. This is the dumbest way to die. The sum total of Hoshea's idiocy, his contribution to the story of salvation history, well, just a few short verses. Have a look at verse 3 of chapter 17. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, attacked him and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. But the king of Assyria discovered Hoshea's conspiracy. He had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and had not paid tribute money to the king of Assyria as in previous years. Therefore, the king of Assyria arrested him and put him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land, marched up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. The king breaks the number one rule of being a king of a small nation. Whatever you do, don't annoy the local superpower, especially if you've just been conquered by him. But Hoshea did and Israel is gone. Just like that. This is so understated, but so enormous. Ten twelfths, five sixths, if you like it better that way, of God's people are wiped out. The area of the promised land is drastically reduced. The reliability of God's promises is called into question. The curses of the covenant are spilled out, blessing seemingly lost. How did it come to this? What's the underlying problem? The answer, verse 7. This disaster happened because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and because they had worshipped other gods. Verse 8, they had lived according to the custom of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites and the customs of the kings of Israel had introduced. Yeah, yeah, their problem was sin. But what form did the sin take? What did it look like? They feared other gods. They walked in the ways of the nations, in the ways of Israel. They thought like, talked like, acted like, dreamt like everyone else. They got sucked into the anti-God patterns and rhythms of life on earth. In other words, their issue was worldliness. Verses 9 to 11 lists off the ways in which they 
displayed their similarities to everyone else. They did all this stuff secretly against the Lord. They built high places, pillars, ashrams. They did offerings, occult, wicked things. They served idols. Now, yeah, of course, idolatry is a huge issue. But beneath their idolatry is a prior rejection of the God who graciously brought them up out of Egypt. Beneath their idolatry is a decision to live like everyone else. It's the decision not to love Yahweh and serve him alone, to look elsewhere for satisfaction and security. It's what the Bible calls worldliness. God warned them repeatedly, verse 13, 14, 15. But what did they do, verse 15? They rejected his word and his covenant. They went after false idols and became chevel, the Ecclesiastes word. They became what they worshipped, nothing. Vapour, breath, gone. It's quite dramatic. They became nothing because they served nothing. Don't miss the fact that the problem with Israel, as with Ahaz, is not simply idolatry. If you scrape away idolatry, you find a bigger underlying issue. Rejection of the ways of God, a rejection of being his, a refusal to stand out from other nations. It's always been part of Israel's DNA. We go right back to the start. Verse 21, chapter 17. When the Lord tore Israel from the house of David, Israel made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam led Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins that Jeroboam committed and did not turn away from them. Finally, the Lord removed Israel from his presence, just as he had declared through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel had been exiled to Assyria from their homeland until today. Idols aren't even mentioned here as reasons for judgment and exile because the deeper issue is refusing to follow Yahweh, refusing to walk after him in the sea of his grace and mercy. Once we've made the call not to walk after God, then the only other option is to fall into step with everyone else, which is worldliness. So with the PS that takes up the rest of this chapter, our writer makes sure that we don't miss the fact that this is an enduring issue, perhaps the primary issue that God's people have to face. This is the big issue for us, living for Jesus in a world that is completely out of step with him. Chapter 17, verse 33. They feared the Lord, but they also worshipped their own gods according to the custom of the nations where they had been deported from. They're still practicing the former customs to this day. None of them fear the Lord or observe their statutes and ordinances, the law and the commandments the Lord, the Lord commanded the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob. He had renamed him Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, do not fear other gods, do not bow down to them, do not serve them, do not sacrifice them. Instead, fear the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm. You are to bow down to him and you are to sacrifice to him. You are to be careful always to observe the statutes, the ordinances, the law, the commandments he wrote for you. Do not fear other gods. Do not forget the covenant that I have made with you. Do not fear other gods, but fear the Lord your God. And he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, 
They would not listen, but continued practicing their former customs. These nations feared the Lord, but also served their idols. Their children and their grandchildren continued doing as their fathers did until today. Do you see the flow in that? What's changed? Absolutely nothing. The choice remains, do we worship Yahweh alone or the world like everyone else? The threat is the same for us. Whether in Israel or in Judah, whether in the vacuum that was left when Israel was no more, whether before Jesus or after his coming, the biggest danger we face as God's kids is worldliness. I hope you get that. Do you? The spiritual Ebola virus that consistently threatens to wreak havoc in our lives is worldliness. Whether it takes the form of Ahaz's press the panic button politics or here's something I saw on holiday view of Israel's worship or Israel's national corporate determination to make themselves completely indistinguishable from everyone else around them, this attitude is fatal. This is why materialism is so dangerous. It's why cynicism is so dangerous. It's why hedonism, the chasing after pleasure at any cost, is so dangerous because all those things are just worldliness with flesh on it. Starting to think like, talk like, act like, dream like everyone else. It's getting sucked into the anti-God patterns and rhythms of life on earth. What's the antidote? There is only one. Fearing God and serving him alone. Measuring everything we do, say and think by everything that God says, does and thinks. Shaping all that we do, say and think by what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is significant difference though, isn't there, between the people we read about in two kings and people like us, Christians here, community of Chirabilly and Lavender Bay. The difference is that we are in Christ. Ahaz and all the Israelites knew about God's grace, patience and mercy. They knew that he was to be feared. They knew they needed God's forgiveness and help. They knew they needed someone to rescue them from their sins and that God had promised them a rescuer. They knew all that. Don't let them off the hook too easily. But we know more. The rescuer has come, the wonderful counsellor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, and his name is Emmanuel, Christ, God with us. That by faith alone we have been joined to Christ alone and he has poured out his Holy Spirit into our lives and is at work in our lives today from now until eternity. You see, it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is the key to surviving this deadly, attractive world. See how Paul sums it up in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God, unmerited favour, has appeared with salvation, rescue for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us, rescue us, buy us back from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself 
a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. It is Jesus Christ alone who is the key to surviving the deadly, attractive world in which we live. John Owen wrote in the 17th century, when someone sets his affections on the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. When we fix our eyes on Christ and the cross, the baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. Brothers and sisters, fill your affections with the love of Christ and the love of other people and you will find no room for the world. That's godliness. Fill your affections with the love of Christ and love for others and you will have no room for the world. The battle against worldliness. The battle to love Jesus first and best is a lifelong one. But it can only be fought by a steady trickle of small decisions to gaze on Christ and to cling to the grace of God. Godliness, faithfulness, fearing God is ultimately the sum of millions of little moments and decisions where your gaze is on the horizon of grace. It's the avoidance of little evils, little weaknesses, little moments of selfishness. The setting aside of little bits of worldliness, little inconsistencies, little compromises, little indiscretions. And doing the little duties, the little responsibilities really well. It's the hard work of self-denial in the little things and the cultivation of being godly in little things. That's what the ordinary, radically different Christian godly life looks like. It's the path to fear God and giving him glory as we gaze on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to belong to him. Worldliness. It's something to think like, talk like, act like, dream like everyone else. It's getting sucked into the anti-God patterns and rhythms of life on earth. Worldliness. Unlike international roast coffee, unlike repeating the last verse, has stood the test of time. So let's face up to that and then run from it. To focus again on the Lord Jesus Christ who is our strength, our life, our wisdom, our hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Search us, break us, rebuild us and strengthen us. Turn our gaze again on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived, died and rose again and lives and reigns for us. And we pray in his name. Amen.